Okay. Hi, I'm Anne. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, I'm really nervous about doing this this morning, which is not usual for me, but um, I, I came last night and I just loved last night. You know, I, I've already really got what I needed to get out of this weekend, I think, but I found it really emotional. And, um, you know, sometimes um, when I first started thinking about the steps in my recovery, it was a, a, um, really a case of, I suppose, being dragged into it by people who... Um, convinced me that if I, need, if, I, if I wanted to stay sober, I needed to do this stuff. But, um, uh, you know, it was very much doing it by rote um, to begin with. And, um, you know, it's just interesting as my recovery progressed, I find I, I connect with this stuff on a, on a much, much more emotional level, which is, I don't really know what that means. When I got here, I was um, just th sitting there thinking about my, my reaction to step two. I remember my first meeting which was um, in a, a religious a hall belonging to some religious establishment and step two was about the point where I got scared because I looked at that power greater than ourselves and I wasn't fooled you know I knew that that meant God and um, <laughs> the reference to the God and the rest of it just scared the crap out of me to be honest I was um, brought up in a part of the world that was fairly big on evangelical Christianity and um, please don't be offended if that's your way of thought because I've learned a bit more tolerance, I hope, in my recovery. But um, I wasn't very tolerant about that view and I wasn't brought up in a family that was very tolerant of that and I just thought, well, I'm out of here, you know. What saved me that night was the people who spoke about um, their emotions, they spoke about what alcohol had done to them and they spoke about their recovery um, and, you know, they, they had what I wanted, I guess. But I really didn't get that step then. I had some more drinking to do and I came um, back to look at the steps about 18 months later after I'd done that extra drinking um, and got to a point where I was, I'd surrendered, I believe. Um, and what I'd come to understand at that point was that I was powerless over that decision to pick up the first drink and that terrified me. Um, up until that point, I think I'd been playing around with the program a bit, you know, and I thought, well, I can come here and scrub up a bit and, you know, clean up my act and uh, make amends to the people who are a bit upset with me and, uh, you know, get that promotion at work. But, you know, someday I'd be able to drink again. And when I got confronted with the reality of my powerlessness over alcohol, very reluctantly and very grudgingly, um, I was terrified because I didn't have the power I knew in myself. I had come to meetings throughout that 18 months. I'd not walked away from meetings and I knew that for this alcoholic, just coming to AA meetings hadn't kept me sober. And again, you know, I believe it's an individual program. I don't have a problem if just coming to meetings keeps somebody else sober, but I knew it hadn't kept me sober and that I needed to do more. And I was um, fortunate that where I was in Hobart at that time, there were a group of very active members. Um, I, I really went to them because I think I thought they'd keep me safe, you know. And I began, one of them became my sponsor, and I began really just following what they did. Um, as if, you know, by right, I just thought that if I can do this and practice it, I'll, I'll get some of that knowledge. Um, I, and I came to understand step two in a different way two, you know, step two for me was that, that powerlessness over my decision to pick up the first drink. When I first came here I had thought that um, I'd had a period of, um, certainly my behaviour when I drank was insane and some of the things I did, 
Um, but I'd had a period of diagnosed insanity. You know, I'd suffered from an anxiety disorder. I'd been treated for that, and I believed that you know I had, at some level, something that was really mentally wrong with me. And I thought it would be great if something could fix that, because probably you know that was one of the reasons I drank. So that you know, if you fixed that, maybe I wouldn't drink or drink as much. You know, and so I, I think I, you know, I was still looking for the back door. So when I, you know, when I surrendered, I guess I had to start looking at, at step two. And with the background that I had and the attitude that I had um, to religion, or to certain types of religion, I guess, um, it was a bit of a problem for me. I'd actually been confirmed in the Anglican Church, so I shouldn't say that I, you know, we were anti-religious, but it, that had been a very mechanical sort of a process too. And um, I just had an absolute horror of religion. Um, my sponsor at that stage was a, she was a twice divorced Roman Catholic who'd been brought up in the Anglican Church and she was going to this little Methodist church. She was kind of doing one of her spiritual explorations and I remember going to this church with her in this little country town that she lived in um, outside of Hobart and we drove down on this Sunday morning into this beautiful, you know, misty morning and this little church on the hillside and the people were really friendly and I, you know, I had a loved the sensation in there, I felt really welcome and warm, until the minister stood up and started doing the sermon and that was the point at which I wanted to run and it, I think it's just something in me, I don't like being told and uh, as soon as I would get that sensation in, I, I would just want to flee. So I tried lots of things at that um, point, I you know, had another friend who was into Buddhism and I went a bit and did a bit of meditation, um, I read a lot. Um, and I ran around a lot, you know, asking people what I should do to try and get this higher power into my life. Some of that stuff, you know, worked, um, I believe, you know, gradually. A lot of it, maybe not. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't necessarily believe that any of it was wrong. It was, you know, for me, a, a process of exploration. At least while I was doing that, you know, I wasn't obsessing about drinking, which was the other great preoccupation at that time. You know, even after I admitted my paralysis over alcohol, I had an obsession with alcohol that probably lasted two or three years into my recovery. I used to say 18 months to two years, but thinking about it more recently, I, I can. Um, I left Tasmania to come to Melbourne when I was 18 months sober. Uh, I was still mad as a cut snake, and um, coming here and my first year in Melbourne was a bit like doing my first year of recovery all over again. And I was terrified that I was going to drink again, you know, and, and I, someone who remembers me from that time says, I used to sit in meetings like that and I used to wriggle a lot, you know, I couldn't sit still and I was, you know, I was full of fear. And uh, I was about, um, you know, I can remember being about two years sober and um, I, I was sitting in this meeting that I went to fairly regularly and this older member who was... Um, very perceptive. He was partly blind and I think, you know, one of those people that, that was able to sense things in people. And I remember him sitting down next to me and just saying, if you keep doing what you're doing, you'll be okay. You know, it's like he could sense that fear in me um, that I couldn't tell anyone, you know, because I was very busy sort of putting up a front and running around and doing lots of meetings and things and, and you know, trying to convince everyone that I was okay. But I, you know, I've been really lucky in my sobriety that I've been sometimes when I can't articulate what's going on, there'll be people who kind of spot it and front me on my behaviour and, and you know break through to me when I can't I can't reach out. And 
what I came, I've come, I came to understand about that time was, you know, my higher power for me works a lot through people. When I look back at the circumstances of my recovery, you know, my 18 months kind of messing around with the program, I went in and out of two or three detoxes. <laughs> there were things that happened to me in those places and circumstances that just, you know, really demonstrate to me really clearly that I was being looked after. You know, there was a member of a fellowship on staff at one of those places that looked after me. There were people who just turned up in my life that I've never seen again um, and said stuff or did stuff, you know, that, that just got me over that little patch that I needed to get through or gave me, an, you know, gave me another clue about how I should approach the program. Uh, so I think for me a lot of, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, I needed to start with something. I started with the willingness and I just think for me that's the key with step two. I needed to be willing to open my mind a little bit to explore things, to take some of the stuff that I learned as a child and maybe look at it in different ways uh, and to try and approach um, you know, my life in a different way. You know? I spent a lot of time in meetings because I felt safe and there were some people in those meetings that made me feel safe, you know, they were people that had a feeling of strength or a feeling of serenity and I started trying to hang around those people. I chose not to hang around people who didn't give me that feeling. Um, I like, you know, one of the things I've learnt in recovery I, I hope is that I kind of, you know, I don't have to have everybody's recovery uh, and what, you know keeps me sober may make you drink, you know. Um, to be able to, to find what I want and that, that people who gave me that feeling of, of um, peace and contentment in their lives. I had one friend in particular, I used to spend hours around at her place just because it felt safe, you know. When I walked through that door, I, you know, I felt, um, you know, that just uh, I could sit there and crap on about myself for a couple of hours and, um, you know, I would be in a good place. I... Um, I'm not someone who can say that I've, I've recovered, you know, any sort of religious faith in recovery. I've um, experimented with a lot of different things, but what seems to work best for me is an approach that keeps it fairly simple. I have a, you know, a daily routine of prayer and meditation that works for me, and I, I, you know, I believe implicitly today that my high power will keep me sober on a daily basis. I, you know, if I do certain things, I don't have any argument with that anymore. I don't look for holes in it. That's been proven to be true over a period of years now for me. It, that's what I think it talks about in the big book as the, you know, the experience-based, you know, um, spiritual experience. It's not been a sudden dramatic conversion. My, my first uh, year around in Hobart, there were people uh, around me who kept having these sudden religious conversions and I thought that I was doing something really wrong because it wasn't happening to me, you know. I had one guy who saw angels, you know, and another bloke who implicitly believed that God was finding him parking spaces. And I've got to tell you, God has never found me a parking space. So I've you know, expressed the view that he ought to on a lot of occasions. Um, and I, you know, and, and um, you know, those people are still sober, so something was working, you know, in their lives too. Um, but I. You know, that just wasn't the way I could approach it. And I think part of that for me was my personality too. You know, I'm, I'm na by nature very cynical and very sceptical and um, I, I, was, I do a job that has trained me to analyse and question things. So I'm, I'm not like somebody who is going to take a lot on faith. There was a woman um, who's very important to me in my early recovery. She was uh, 
and I always get emotional when I talk about her, but she was, um, she was actually in her second recovery. She had been uh, sober for 25 years and she had drunk again. And she'd come to live in Hobart when she was in about the fifth year of her second recovery. Uh, and I identified a lot with her story. She was a very independent woman. Um, she'd lived on her own for most of her life. She'd done um, a, a job where she'd been very responsible and she'd drunk after 25 years um, of good sobriety. Um, and she'd drunk socially for a while. You know, she'd had about 18 months of social drinking and then it had turned again and she had ended up in, in dereliction. And um, she was living in Hobart at that stage, um, above a pub where I'd used to drink, in fact, and uh, she had an enormous sense of serenity. She had an enormous amount of serenity. She was very ill at the time, too, and a very no-nonsense approach to recovery. You know, it was like she didn't have much time to waste. She was quite willing to pass on her um, knowledge and her experience to people, but you didn't mess around with her a lot. And um, I would go to the women's meeting uh, in Hobart quite often at that stage, and she was one of the, the older members of that group. And I would come in waffling about, you know, whatever else it was that was going on in my life that day. I was in a lot of fear. And the answer that I always got was, you know, the answer to fear is faith. The answer to fear is faith. And I used to get really annoyed about that because I knew, you know, it's like I knew I didn't have it, but I wanted it and I wanted it now. Um, and I, I want, you know, I wanted microwave sobriety. I sort of wanted the, the instant fix and for the fear to go away. And I, and I can remember she would just keep saying to me, you know, the answer to the fear is faith, the answer to the fear is faith, just, you know, just try, just hand it over, you know, just try and pray about it, just try, and I'd be like, how, you know, and I'm oh, doing that and it's not working. Um, and the truth of it was the answer was just time, you know, and the answer was just trying to develop that faith and try to keep working at it and trying to have trust that what I couldn't see working um, in my life, I could see working in the lives of people around me, you know, I could see the strength of her recovery, I could see, you know, other people getting sober and having that quality of life, but I guess, you know, what I didn't have was much, much faith that it would, would work for me. Um, and the miracle of it is that I, it has, you know, somewhere around, um, as I say, three years uh, without a drink, I realised that it was working, you know, that, that I was managing to maintain sobriety, that somewhere along the line the obsession with alcohol had left me, the feeling that I was going to have to have another drink had gone. And I can't sort of say exactly when that left, you know, it, it was probably a gradual thing. And a lot of the fear went out of my life around that point because you know, it's like when you, your mind is full of an obsession, there is room for nothing else, you know. Um, my, my life had revolved around drinking when I drank. Sober for those first few years, it revolved around not drinking and the fear that I was going to drink again. And when that left me, um, that's when I believed <coughs> that I was restored to sanity. You know, my life started to open up and I could start to, you know, have ambitions and plans and things I wanted to do with my life. And, you know, I started to become useful around Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I, I had a bit of experience that I could pass on to, to other people. Um, so, you know, that's, that's really been my experience with Step 2. Um, I think I've been restored to sanity most days on a daily basis. Um, but like most alcoholics, I will have that thought come into my mind from time to time that, you know, maybe I could drink again. Um, connection with a higher power, I believe, is what enables me to recognise that as an insane thought, you know, based on all my knowledge and ex past experience, 
there's no way that, that I could ever drink safely again. But, you know, when that happens to me today, I know that, you know, it means I'm on the program, basically. And there's something I need to do, something, something I'm not working, maybe my connection with my high power is not where it ought to be. Um, <coughs> say I'm, I'm not someone who's recovered or a religious faith in my recovery although you know I've been lucky to do a bit of traveling in in recovery and I've sat in a Catholic church in Italy a couple of years ago and and felt that this was such a beautiful place that maybe if I lived here I could become a Catholic but you know <laughs> I've had that but I've had that feeling of connection you know I've sat in a Japanese temple and had that same feeling you know I've sat in my car and had that same feeling or sat with another member and had a coffee and you know that that presence has been there I don't you know I don't believe that it's um, my notion of a high power is not an exclusive one and I believe that I can connect with it in, it in everywhere. There's a lot of days that I don't feel it closely. There are some days that I do. And it's also, you know, for me, um, tied to how I'm working the rest of the program, I, I believe. Um, I spent last weekend um, in the town where I grew up in Tasmania and um, I had a very strong connection last week. You know, I just felt a really strong presence there. and. This is a place I hated, you know, where I spent 15 years of my life and could not wait to leave. Uh, and that's, you know, the, one of the miracles of my recovery is that I go back there today and I can be at peace, you know, with my past that's there. And, you know, again, have that, that connection in what's really a beautiful part of the world. And that, you know, is, is really as a result of, you know, I'm probably on step 11 at this point, but, it, you know, it is a result of working the rest of the program in my life to the best of my ability on a daily basis. And that's really all I have to do. Um, you know, I haven't achieved spiritual enlightenment. The angels haven't come down to, to carry me off. And I'm unlikely to experience nirvana. But, you know, um, I didn't know I was spiritually bankrupt when I got here. I had no idea what that meant when people talked about that. In the town that I grew up in, um, spirituality was stuff for hippies, you know, and you didn't want to be one of those. And um, like I say, my horizons have expanded a bit since then, but I, I kind of had no idea um, that there was a whole, you know, a whole range of feeling and experience out there. And one of the gifts of my recovery, I believe, is that I've, I've been given that. You know, I came here to not drink. And I've been given so much more, um, you know, and for that I'm, I'm really grateful. I think I've really talked myself out, so I am going to leave it there. Um, but, um, just, you know, again, I want to thank the organisers very much for this weekend. <coughs> it's been terrific um, for me so far. And I, you know, where I got sober, we didn't really have this distinction between different types of meetings, you know, and it was one thing that really surprised me a bit when I came to Melbourne, that I, I was given a lot of advice about what sort of meetings I could, I should go to when I came here. Uh, when you get sober in a small place, you usually find there are just meetings, you know, and people may do, have different formats and do different things in those meetings, but you really just grab hold of them and you try and make them work for you because that's all you've got. Um, and I'm, you know, very much a believer in using everything there is um, available in this program to stay sober because, um, you know, half measures um, did not did not get me sober. Thanks. <laughs>